somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody believed it, and nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. alone and I, I I don't want to leave her in there alone. I'm not standing here shaking for nothing. <laughs> How about you? Oh, it's very, very real. I don't like it. I want to go home. I want to see if it's going to make me throw up. It's real. It's one of the most grossest movies uh, in the world. <laughs> I ain't never took my coat and hit it over my face like that. Uh, I thought it was uh, very powerful. It just turned my mind. Terrible. But I just found it really horrible. I just had to come out. I couldn't take him. People are extremely depressed by this. All right, there we go. Welcome. Dude. Are you spooked out, man? Episode. Dude, I, yeah, I, I'm spooked out, man. I'm all ready for this. People probably think yeah. we love Satan now because we've done two <laughs> devil episodes in a row. Yeah. Well, I, I speak for my myself but uh <laughs> um yeah so well everybody welcome to the cultural futures exchange cfx this is episode 45 as you no doubt guessed the exorcist the famous movie from the early 70s and we'll get into all of those uh details about it but before we get started this is the place where we examine different pieces pieces of cultural ephemera movie today books tv music anything we can think of, examine the context of the time that they came out, what's happened since, and our take on a future valuation of the item, kind of should you go short, long, or, or stay neutral. And that's what we do here. And so here we are, episode 45, The Exorcist. Cool. So what before we get started, I just want to say why we're doing this now and why right after the Satan Titanic episode. Uh, to be honest, obviously with the devil episode, this was on my mind, but also it's like 50 years um, it's very similar to our war games episode. And, you know, there were a lot of people talking about war games because of AI and the fact that it was the 40th anniversary of the movie. Well, this is the 50th anniversary of the exorcist. And we also just lost William Friedkin earlier, I believe this year, the end of last year, I don't remember. And then waiter, William Peter Blatty died a few years ago as well. So, so it's like, he just died. So people are talking about this a lot. And then there's this whole new trilogy that's coming out. The first film was released. We'll touch on that. 
Um, I haven't seen it. And also, you know, the, the sequels, and we're not doing, you know, even though we did the whole Phantasm series, we're not doing the Exorcist series, uh, but we will touch on those movies and discuss their in the history a bit. Um, but yeah, that's basically it. So I think uh, it, it's mainly because of two reasons. One, we just did this back masking episode and two, it's the 50th anniversary. But what's funny is before we started this, we used Zoom and of course, Zoom was acting up. So I was joking that it was the devil, you know, because this movie is like all about the victory of God over Satan. Maybe. I don't know. So I think the devil was getting involved. I think it was the this little known God, Pazuzum, that was, uh, you know, interfering with our with our shit. So any rate. Yeah. Or it could just be my general confidence with all the very technologies that I have to master to do this. So. Well, uh, getting a little hint of your opinion of this film, I think we might have to perform an exorcism on you, Jeff, because uh, yeah, later <laughs> later in the show, we'll, we'll decide. At uh, any rate, why don't we jump into our personal histories? Uh, yeah, I, I'll go first because mine's a lot less detailed. Um, my history with this movie is somewhat limited. Um, I wasn't actually even certain I had seen the entire movie before I watched it for this show. I've definitely seen parts of it growing up. Um, you know, it's been on cable and, and stuff a million times. And I, I, I recognize major parts of the movie. I, I saw things that I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this part or that scene or that person or that character and things like that. But I couldn't actually remember having sat through um, the entire thing. Um, certainly, I'm familiar with the plot of it. I, I mean, it's just part of our cultural zeitgeist at this point, the, the plot of the movie. It's such a big um part of our uh, cultural heritage, no doubt, and stuff like things that are people make jokes about all the time, like the power of Christ compels you and things like that, and the, the fuck me Jesus kind of scene and the spinning head and all that stuff. It's just part of our references to it are everywhere and have been part of our culture forever. Um, I'm not really the biggest horror fan in the world in general, although you wouldn't know that from the Phantasm episode. Yeah, there's no... There's no uh long-haired bald guys uh trying to get laid in this movie so it's well, not really which automatically puts it at a disadvantage in my in my book <laughs> yeah I, I mean i was just gonna say the phantasm movies to me are more inter more uh interesting in the sense that they're say, a comedy comedy horror stuff like that uh nightmare on elm street was kind of the same sort of deal especially the later ones um you know maybe the first one wasn't as much we, we, we'll get to that movie at some point no doubt yeah phantasm so. like the movies you like the best are like action horror comedies. Yeah. Essentially yeah, they're like, that kind of stuff. they're the first ones, like a pretty much straightforward horror film with some, you know, mildly funny elements. But the second the one is just pure the comedy. Part. The third yeah. one has all these comedic scenes and, and they're yeah. more action oriented. There's a lot more, uh, you know, uh, uh action scenes. So it, it, it's yeah. understandable if you're not into because the exorcism doesn't have any of that i mean the action in this is totally of a different nature so yeah and i i never I, I, again you know i think the first time i was seeing horror movies was that early early 80s genre right where you know some of those earliest movies where we're supposed to not see those i, I mean the late the halloween and the friday the 13th movies i didn't see them when they first came out because those were like late 70s and i was too young so when i when I finally did see them, they were in the era of the, you know, the Phantasm movie. The um, that was a little later, but like the Nightmare on Elm Street and all those sorts of things. So that that's sort of my uh, my history with it. And so yeah, I and then I rewatched it again recently for this show. So that's that's kind of the extent of it. Um, so I'll turn it over to you for yours. 
Yeah. So the, again, the beginnings are similar to yours. It's vague. I'm not sure where I first saw it. I know that it was one of those R-rated movies that kids with the more permissive parents talked about. Like Animal House was another one, right? In right. like elementary school. And they, you know, they talked about how crazy it was and, and the scenes and the, some of the language. And, you know, when I eventually did, I saw that they were not exaggerating. <laughs> um, that's one thing that'll be a theme in this is how shocking some of the things in this movie still are to me but i don't remember i may have been late i cable it may have been the tv broadcast this was broadcast on tv i was actually trying to find on youtube some of the clips you know how they overwrite the language scenes because obviously there's scenes in this movie that could not be shown on tv even with with dubbing but obviously you know there's like you know it's something like your mother you know, sniff socks in hell or something. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. And I wanted to yeah, find clips of that because I think that's always that's hilarious. That's my favorite one. Yeah. yeah. The, when they played Fast Times uh, on TV, they dubbed Spicoli saying, fuck you or you dick to Fuzzy Nerd. That was my favorite one. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a famous one for the Big Lebowski that's actually real, uh, which is... Uh, do you know what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? Which is, of course, <laughs> do you know what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass? Which is Walter Sobchak. Um, there's actually an indie rock artist who my niece loves. I'm going to have to look it up um, and I'll chime in a little later uh, with it. She actually created an album. It's pretty good music, too. I was like, she bought a record and I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. It's kind of a folky indie thing. And she, um, oh, Phoebe Bridgers. Phoebe Bridgers. So she loves this artist, Phoebe Bridgers. And, and it's like she has an album called Stranger in the Alps, and that's what it's named after. Ah, so that's awesome. Pretty cool. Didn't know that. Yeah, pretty good music, too. I, I really dug it. Um, anyway, uh, so so yeah. So again, I don't remember, but I definitely saw it later in high school. And I was scared by it, even though even by the by the time in high school, I didn't believe in the devil and all that shit. You know, it, and I don't think my opinion of this movie has much to do with that. Um you know, I can see. But to, see, be, like but to I, be fair, you were scared of Run to the Hills too. Yeah, it's more like what I was seeing. I was kind of like, what? It just gave me this sick feeling. You know, there's it's yeah. just fucked up. Is is what this movie is. Um, and then later, I think in high school or maybe college, we go, we watched like rented Exorcist two, The Heretic. Me and my friends used to rent like cult movies, and uh, it's like probably one. It's got to be in the top ten worst movies I've ever seen. Um, yeah, it's I John Borman, who's a really weird director, obviously directed Deliverance, which is amazing. Excalibur, which I think are mixed opinions on, but it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, you know, and he's directed other shit like The General that's been a critically acclaimed. But he's a, and his weirdest movie is called Zardoz with uh, Sean Connery, uh, kind of a Wizard of Oz, weird, psychedelic, futuristic movie that I do enjoy, but it's fucking weird. And The Exorcist to The Heretic is really fucked up and weird. But in a really boring way, it's um, Richard Burton at his absolute fucking hammiest. <laughs> now, I will say, and this is probably going to creep some listeners out, but when I did watch this in high school, I did like one thing about it, which was I was definitely into Linda Blair. Like mm. I uh, she was like 18. I will James. say she was 18. So, yeah. of course, I was that's like better than- yeah, but that's better than when Rick Springfield was with her and she was like 15. We'll yeah, Rick Springfield too. was with her and who else? Neil Giraldo. Rick, right? And, from and our, Rick James. Oh, Rick James? Shit, dude. Yeah. She got around. Yeah. But I, even those 80s movies like Savage Streets, I was pretty much had a Linda Blair thing. It was kind of her and young Lita Ford, like yeah. with the runaways. I, I don't know. It's this look 
this kind of 70s look I, I was into at the time. But anyway, I'll just leave it at that. I've watched a lot of shitty Linda Blair movies for that reason. Um, sorry to creep everybody out. Okay, uh, Exorcist 3. I saw it on cable. And uh, a lot of people think it's this lost classic. It's actually directed by William Peter Blatty. Um, and it's, you know... There's a couple of good scenes. It's it's just doesn't have the power to me of the original, which I guess I'm giving my myself away here. But and then I saw the re-release. So I finally saw it on the big screen. There was a cut called The Version You've Never Seen Before that was released in theaters in the year 2000. I played at this theater here in San Francisco called the Metreon. And I went with a, a co-worker friend. And some of the people are actually kind of goofing on it in the theater, which I thought was fucked up because I was fucked up by it. it. It creeped me out, even though the the version that you see on the I guess it's just some of those images on the big screen just like stuck with me in a weird way. So it was kind of just creepy feeling, even though, like I said, I don't believe in any of this stuff. My sister totally believes in ghosts and all this shit. She's like, have you seen The Conjuring? I was like holding on to my Bible and shit. And I'm like, I don't believe in any of that shit. So it doesn't phase me that way. It's more like, I be, I think scarier shit is people. Yeah. Like, like kind of Charles Manson shit, that kind of scares me, you know? Like, um, what's a movie called The Vanishing? If you ever heard of it, it's like a Dutch horror film where it's the serial killer and he buries this woman alive and this guy's trying to find her. And he goes to a rest stop and the guy kidnaps her and he doesn't know what happened to her. And to me, every time my wife goes into like a, the gas station i'm like thinking of that fucking movie i'm like is someone gonna come that's to me is scarier than shit that movie fucked me up i would never watch it again but something like this you know it's different it just it kind of gave me the chills just looking at some of the imagery but the problem with this director's cut is it's got all this cgi in it you know they have the face of um the actress uh let me find her name here who uh Elaine Dietz, who played Linda Blair's stunt double, they have her painted up in face makeup. And there's a subliminal, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. There's a subliminal shot of, of that laid over Linda Blair's face in the original. But in the CGI version, they're just popping this face all over the place. It's really stupid. And um, they had some other bad CGI. But they also had this scene that was cut from the original where another stunt double, sorry, I don't remember the name of the person, does a backward crab walk on the stairs and it's Linda Blair supposed to be Linda Blair, but it just, it interrupts the flow of the movie because that's even before she has the scene where she comes down to the party and pisses herself and says, you're going to yeah. die up there, which we'll talk about. So it, it doesn't really fit in, but I still like seeing it on the big screen. And I've still, I rewatched the original for, for this and I definitely prefer it a lot more in a way that's a producer's cut because Blatty wanted some of these scenes and he wanted this end scene where they talk about movies again with Kinderman and uh, uh, Father, what is O'Malley? It, it doesn't belong there. The original ending with just the shots of the empty stairs and the boarded up window is much creepier. Um, so at any rate, uh, of course, I love Tubular Bells. So Tubular Bells, we'll talk about a little bit in the history. But uh, I love the whole album. I have it. It's a classic Krog album, and I love Prog. And so at any rate, my wife hates the theme of Tubular Bells, and I can't understand why, because I think it's it's totally influential on horror. I mean, obviously, Halloween and even Phantasm were completely influenced by this uh, theme. I am also a fan of William Peter Blatty's one other film he made called The Ninth Configuration. It's just a crazy cult film. Uh, my wife was into it. She showed it to me, and I think it's kind of this underrated gem. I've not seen 
either of the versions of Dominion or Exorcist the Beginning, the prequels directed by Paul Schrader and Rennie Harlan, respectively. Supposedly, what people say about the first one, the Paul Schrader film, is it's the most boring film ever made. And the Rennie Harlan film where he changed certain people and reshot the whole thing is the dumbest film ever made, which is saying a lot because, you know, basically Exorcist 2, The Heretic, fills both of those bills. But I have not seen those. I have not seen the new TV show that came out a few years ago on FX. I have not seen, um, and I have not seen the the reboot trilogy, uh, you know, that's come out since the first movie, right? Uh, which we'll talk about a little bit in the history. But I just read this book uh, by Nat Segaloff, who was a former publicist for studios. And he uh, wrote this book called The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear. And I had got that in a bookstore because anytime I go into a bookstore, yeah, I just happen to run into a bookstore. I always buy a book. Like I have to buy a book. That's the rule, especially if it's like an independent bookstore, which seems like that's, that's all there is. So I bought this book before, and that's kind of what got me kind of psyched to do the movie. So anyway, uh, as far as the zeitgeist of this, obviously it's a supernatural thriller is what it's called. I mean, it's a horror film, but it's also kind of, there's kind of a little bit of a mystery there and it's a thriller. Obviously, I think there's a massive influence of Rosemary's Baby on this film. Rosemary's Baby was kind of the first real movie of its kind where you had the devil and, you know, it's it's kind of a black comedy, but I do think there's some elements. I think one character in this film is totally meant to be Roman Polanski, the director, Um, I could see that. Yeah. He kind of looks like him. Right. Uh, Dennings, Burt Dennings. Um, And then, but as far as other kind of demonic thrillers, you know, you had Haxon, which is this 1922 silent film. Whenever you see like videos where there's little devils dancing around and it's obviously filmed in the twenties and it's hell that's Haxon. Uh, I've seen the whole thing. It's on criterion. It's pretty cool. It's like just creepy and kind of a interesting little silent film gem there. Uh, and then Night of the Demon, which is a really cool movie, a uh, British movie of the late 50s uh, that concerns like it's kind of this conspiratorial witch coming kind of similar, maybe an influence on Rosemary's Baby. Obviously, Rosemary's Baby was based on the Ira Levin bestseller. Uh, but anyways, as far as that goes, I think that's mainly it. There's a, there's other films like Race with the Devil, which came later. And then there's um, uh, The Devil's Reign, which came later. And, uh, you know, so, so there's, um, there's also, uh, but, but I would say, yeah, that, that, that's the main influences Oh, the devil rides out. Sorry. That was the one I forgot from the late sixties with hammer film with Christopher Lee. Really cool. But again, nothing quite like this. I think this definitely influenced probably more films than it was influenced by, you know, the omen. It's a big one. I remember my mom seeing the omen and coming home and I was seven years old telling me about this great movie. And I saw it and I'm like, yeah, it's kind of similar. You know, it's it's to me, it's like Exorcist Light, but I do enjoy that Damien, series. Also named Damien as well, right? Yeah, Damien. Damien. I didn't even think about that. Damien Karras, yeah. right? After Damien Karras. Yeah. That's a that's a good catch. I did not even think about that. Uh at any rate, and then there's a black exploitation film I've never seen called Abby, which is like a black exorcist. So just like uh Blackenstein and Blackula, they had Abby. Abby. I mean, there's was, probably uh, porno films too. Dick you know? Van Patten in that? No. Who? Dick Van Patten. Uh, Abby? Abby? No, no. <laughs> that would be crazy if he was some weird white like businessman who was in that, yeah. or he's like he a white priest. I think the priests are probably black in that. But at any yeah. rate, 
So anyway, uh, it's funny too. I read the Mad Magazine parody of this called The Exorcist. And it's funny, yeah. it's got starts out with this introduction by William Peter Blatter. And um, <laughs> it's actually pretty much covers the whole movie. And I was thinking, this is weird because most of the kids, as we'll get into in the history, who read Mad Magazine probably weren't allowed to see this movie. So it's yeah. weird they did a parody of it. I think it's because it was just so huge. Other zeitgeisty stuff. Okay, so we're dealing with the William Friedkin film here. Is obviously one of the, you know, the, named after the book, The Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. Uh, you know, this is the new Hollywood. Obviously, you had De Palma, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese directing around this time. And of course, Stanley Kubrick is a major influence on all these guys, too, even though he is of an earlier generation. Freaking slightly older than some of these guys. I think he's around the same age as Coppola, but he's older than uh, Spielberg and Scorsese. Uh, but he had just been, you know, he was just fresh off the French Connection. So he had its major hit before doing The Exorcist. But that's kind of the zeitgeist. So let's jump into the plot. Um, I have a lot of notes here on the plot. I'm just going to skip over some of this stuff. And if you want to chime in, Jeff, uh, you can. I, I just didn't want to miss anything. So, yeah. you know, basically the film centers around... Uh, you know, a woman whose daughter becomes possessed by a demon or the devil. It's kind of ambiguous. You know, obviously there's this demon Pazuzu, which it's funny. My wife totally watches all the great courses on like archaeology. And she's like, actually, you know, she gave me the whole actually thing about Pazuzu. But it's some ancient Mesopotamian kind of thing. And of course, as we know, with Christianity, anything that's pre-Christian is just satanic. So I guess that's why. But anyway, it's... uh it's a demon Pazuzu supposedly who possesses her. And, um, but basically this is a film actress named Chris McNeil. And she's an actress who's living in Georgetown filming a student film called crash course on the Georgetown campus. That's kind of a protest. There's an early scene where she's like got a megaphone and telling the students to stop writing. And one of the funniest jokes in the mad magazine parody is they're like, why are we filming a movie about 1969 and 1974? Because it is, yeah. like, it was kind of a funny, uh, funny uh, kind of uh, funny. dig at the film. <laughs> but before that, the film actually opens in, you know, it's got this epic kind of almost, uh, I would say, Hollywood epic kind of opening with all of these uh, kind of workers in Iraq digging in this archaeological site. And that's where we meet Father Marin. And there's all these scenes. It kind of gives the film more of an epic scope. Um, yeah. And on the big screen, this is all really awesome. This whole... This... By the way, just on that, I'll talk about later why I don't think that is very... It doesn't mesh well with some of the other stuff. In the, yeah, the Mad Magazine thing points that out too. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. But, it's, I mean, like, it's, totally it's like, why are we filming here? But yeah, anyway, it, so it's so, totally uh, influential. Hang, hang on. Yeah. It's totally influential because all those other movies like Stargate and things like that all start the exact same way. Oh, yeah. I didn't think of that. So, so there, there's like 10 movies. That's just one of them that all start with some dig in the desert with, you know, natives helping some, you know, British guy in a pith helmet find some artifacts. And I mean, you could even say Indiana Jones has elements of this too, right? Like, so. I think I, there may be other movies that have this kind of start, but I'm not aware of it. So I thought this was pretty influential on in how it starts. Yeah, and Fifth Element, too, which I think is probably yeah. as influenced by Stargate as this. It has a similar opening that takes place in ancient Egypt with like an alien being there. It's not a dig, but, you know, um, yeah, I think that 
we'll talk about whether that this works or not and what it's how it serves the film. But anyway, so cut to back to Washington. So we cut to Washington. And so, you know, in this house, Chris McNeil is the actress. He has a daughter named Regan, who's supposed to be, I think she's supposed to be 12, but she was actually at 14 at the time. I want to keep emphasizing that, you know, just to just to emphasize that age. She was Um, 12 in the movie. They said she was 12. Yeah, she's 12 in the movie. And she lives Mm -hmm. with her assistant, Sharon, a maid and a German butler, which will come into play later. Um, And and she has like all these kind of people working for her. And it's very you know, she she seems like it's implied that she has a romantic relationship with her director, Bert Dennings, who, like I said, for reasons I'll talk about later, I think is uh, inspired by Roman Polanski. Um, also, we meet Damien Karras at this time, who is a priest slash psychologist at Georgetown who counsels other priests on, you know, their their kind of crisis, crises of faith. And it's it's a kind of implied he has a little bit of that himself. Um, he's also, uh, you know, uh, Harris and his uncle are struggling to care for his aging mother who still lives in New York. And, you know, that's kind of the setup of some of the main characters. But then we we cut to kind of the horror elements starting to percolate. Chris starts to hear strange noise in the attic and gets rats. the, you know, huh? She's like, oh, there's rats in the attic. There's rats in the reason. attic, but her her <laughs> handyman or whatever goes up there and 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 basically tells her no. You know, there's no rats. And she even goes up there herself. And there's a little bit of jump scare where a candle kind of bursts into flame out of nowhere. Reagan uh, starts acting strangely. You know, there's first a minor incident with a Ouija board. She says she's been using a Ouija board to talk to Captain Howdy. And fun fact, uh, there is a uh, Twisted Sister song. Uh, yep. I'm going to bring that up. <laughs> yep. Captain yeah. Howdy. Um, so anyway, uh you know, so so they play with the Ouija board and it kind of jumps off its thing. So there's these subtle things. Uh, meanwhile, uh, and then, of course, Chris wakes up in another scene with Reagan next to her kind of quaking and shivering and saying her bed was shaking. So she came to sleep with, her, you know, in her mother's bed. Um, meanwhile, there's a we get we cut to the Georgetown kind of campus chapel and there is a statue that has been completely uh violated or or um vandalized Defaced, yeah yeah there's like fake weird pointy boobs on it and a giant dick it's like the virgin mary they put like plastered these on it's pretty fucking creepy so uh then then there's a party scene and this is where the roman polanski thing comes into play because the director bert dennings is there and he keeps kind of harassing the uh butler who's a german and he's saying you know you were you were you know guilty of war crimes basically he's like a, and of course we know that uh roma plansky was a holocaust survivor so i think i think that's not by accident i think it also ties it to the whole manson thing indirectly you know obviously i should say roma plansky is of this kind of new hollywood generation to it even though like uh you know uh kubrick he's slightly older generation he started making films in the early 60s so this party, there's all these different kinds of people. There's actors, politicians. There's even the priest, one of the priest friends of Karis, Father O'Malley is there and he's like playing piano and shit. And there's an astronaut who's talking about he's going to go, you know, fly uh, to the moon or whatever. And all of a sudden you see Reagan, you know, with a blank look, she comes down and is in her nightgown and standing there and she just fucking pisses herself and yeah. tells the astronaut, you're going to die up there. 
which is a pretty amazing scene. So actually, um, and then the next scene, you know, we see as Chris comes home and sees Reagan thrashing on the bed and and takes Reagan for all kinds of harrowing medical tests. And incidentally, fun fact, this is kind of where a lot of people threw up. It was the angiogram she gets. And yeah. there's more of these scenes in the extended cut. And it's pretty harrowing, this this sort of battery of tests. And yeah. she's getting all kinds of medical experts to to figure out, you know, what what is wrong with her. And uh, she brings even the doctors to the house. And that's where Reagan's like, fuck me, <laughs> jabbing yeah. a crucifix. Somehow she gets hold of a crucifix, which no one knows where what, where it came from. Um, they can find nothing medically wrong with her. And they get a psychiatrist who attempts to hypnotize Reagan. Of course, she grabs and bites him in the crotch. And, um, you know, uh, so at one point, that, Chris... By the way, that's why, that's when Rick James decided that he was into her. <laughs> oh yeah totally maybe it was when he saw her tied to the bed he wanted to try yeah. some of that um yeah. but, but anyway um yeah the rick rick james and her relationship might be kind of as horrifying as as this what we know about rick james but that's for another episode obviously um but anyway so uh yeah i mean they get a psychiatrist he you know she bites his, his dick and then they she brings the doctors and um you know, they see her going all crazy. I mentioned that. But at one point, she kind of needs a babysitter. There's no one else to watch. So she gets the director, Burt Dennings. And we learn kind of off screen that she basically, he basically fell out a window and down the stairs. There's this huge, famous Georgetown stairs that people go visit that are right next to a window where Reagan is. And as you'll see, that plays in into the future uh, events of the plot as well. But basically, Burt Dennings is murdered. And... um we learn that his head has been turned around 90 degrees. Uh, we meet uh, Detective Kinderman at this point, who's kind of a movie buff. He's interviewing Karis because he's trying to see if there's a connection between the vandalism in the church and this murder, which seems sort of occulty. Um, he goes to see uh, Chris McNeil to ask her about it since the window is right, you know, her window is right above the stairs and he, he, he uh, basically is kind of suspicious that something might have happened there, that someone might have gotten to Reagan's room. Right now, it's kind of beyond them that it would be Reagan. But he even asked for an autograph. You know, there's all this kind of clunky movie dialogue during these scenes between him and Karis and Chris. Um, you know, we see Reagan uh, speak in Denning's voice and uh, do the same head uh, twisting trick. Uh, you know, at that point, too, which is pretty cool. Um, Karis, meanwhile, after visiting his mom in asylum, had learned that she died. There's also this uh, dream sequence with her um, where, you know, he basically sees Pazuzu's face and there's all these different. He's trying to like he's stuck on a street and he can't get across. Um, but anyway, uh, Chris meets with Karis and is trying to convince him to do an exorcism because the doctors basically tell her that look, we've done all kinds of tests, there's nothing wrong, but there is this slight chance it could be some other thing, an exorcism, and there was a case in the past that this, you know, has fixed problems. They're not sure they believe in it, but it, it may be their only hope. And then, so she brings Karis to see Chris, and that's when uh, Karis meets, I mean, to see Reagan, that's when Karis meets her. And, uh, you know, Basically, Reagan speaks to him in this bump. He had there's an earlier scene where he's visiting his mom in New York and he sees this bomb and he's like, you know, you gotta, 
you got a dime for a for a former choir boy and Reagan speaks in that exact voice, but he's still not very convinced. And then she starts talking about his mother and he says, you don't know my mother. What's her maiden name? And then that's when we get the pea soup scene, right? The, the, yeah. the pea soup splattered all over his face. Um, you know, he goes downstairs. Chris kind of is talking with him. He's still kind of not convinced there's enough evidence. He says there needs they, she needs to speak in another language or something. But obviously that voice, he obviously really knows it's probably the case that she's possessed. Um, at any rate, uh, you know, we cut to a scene of Karis preaching in the church and then back to Reagan, who says, you know, basically Karis is back there and he, and Reagan says in the voice. So now the voice is different, right? I should mention that whenever Reagan talks, it's in this other voice, which we'll talk about. We talk about the history a little bit more, but what an excellent day for an exorcism. It will bring us together. And he says, you and Reagan. And she says, no, you and me. And Reagan starts speaking in, in, in Latin, Right. So he splashes holy water on Reagan, says it burns, but it's not really holy water. It's tap water. So he's still kind of waffling. But, um, you know, uh, what happens is he when she's speaking, it's kind of incoherent. And that's when he takes this to a sound expert and there's back. It's back backwards. So there's back masking in this fucking movie, too, which, yeah. you know, is kind of crazy. It ties to our last episode. And and you you see she's saying, I am no one and speaks uh, Father Marin, who's the father at the beginning in the in the excavation scene played by Max von Sydow. She speaks his name. Right. Uh, and then there's another scene where, you know, Reagan has written there's help embossed on her belly like she's writing it from inside her body. Help me. Um so father, finally, Karis goes to Father Canavan, who heads Georgetown and, and asks about the exorcism. And they recommend Marin because he performed an exorcism before in Africa. Marin arrives and we see that iconic shot. You know, it's so interesting. This is like a horror film. Most of what it's, you know, the iconic imagery should be Reagan, but they don't want to give anything away by the poster. So it's just this scene with him standing under a, a light, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I do remember that, like that's everybody remembers yeah. that poster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it's it's kind of awesome how they don't give anything away by that. You know, it's you don't have any idea what you're in for. So obviously, Reagan and uh, obviously Marin immediately gets to work. He's got, you know, Karis and they've got these books that are like exorcism books. And, you know, Reagan just starts going crazy here saying, you know, stick your cock up her ass, you worthless motherfucker. And your mother <laughs> sucks cocks in hell, Karis, you worthless slime. We get the bed rising up and down. We get Car Karis is Marin is telling Karis to do things, but he's petrified with fear. Uh, you know, of course, we get Marin going, I cast you out, unclean spirit. And Reagan says, mm. shove it up your ass, you faggot. <laughs> Ceiling cracks, door slams, <laughs> cracks, more restraints break. Uh, you know, her our Reagan's restraints break. You know, she levitates, her pupils go back into her head. So it's just the whites of her eyes you're seeing. Very iconic imagery. Yeah. Um, and she she hits Karis on the back of the head uh, and she knocks out Marin. So they're both kind of knocked out. And then Marin goes to the bathroom and he's like struggling to take these pills. And you saw him in the earlier sequence in Iraq taking these pills. So, you know, he has like heart problems or something. I think it's nitroglycerin because he has some kind of heart condition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Or digitalis or, you know, what one of those. Right. Uh, so uh, at any rate, um, uh, Karis leaves the room briefly. But when he comes back, uh, Marin is dead and you just see Reagan out of her restraints, just kind of casually leaning against the, the bedpost. And Kinderman shows up downstairs at the same time, right? So he's coming back because he knows that there's something going on with Reagan or his, his suspicions. 
Meanwhile, Karis fights with Reagan and tells the demon, come into me. And the demon does. So you see Karis's face completely change into a fucked up face like, uh, you know, Reagan's face was. Um, and then he he fights it off. So his face goes back to normal and then he jumps out the window. Right. And then again, you have him falling down the, the iconic staircase. Uh, police and people show up. Kinderman looks down from above and Father Dyer also shows up and, and does the last rites to to Karis. He asks him if he has anything to confess and gives him his last rites. And then we just see the stairs the next day and Chris is packing up to leave. Um, Father Dyer shows up and Chris gives him the medal. Uh, the med- There was a medal, by the way, I should say, there was a medal found in the in the excavation alongside a statue of Pazuzu. So it was like implied that there were exorcisms from thousands of years ago, things kind of not in the same era together. And this medal magically appears with Reagan uh, at one point in the film. And he gives her the medal. And then he basically tells the priest that Reagan doesn't remember any of what had happened. And they they think that's good. And then they drive off and then Dyer looks up at the boarded window and the stairs and then cue tubular bells. Tubular bells plays about three times in the movie. There's one scene of Chris walking. There's a scene at the beginning. And then there's this scene. So that's, um you know, basically... That's the story. That's the plot. Now, as far as major characters, we, as we mentioned, uh, Father Lancaster Marin is played by Max Van Sydow. Chris McNeil is played by Ellen Burstyn. Reagan McNeil is played by Linda Blair. We'll talk more about the casting in a minute. Damian Karras, Jason Miller, who was really a playwright. He wasn't really an actor, but uh, we'll talk about the casting of him. And then Lee J. Cobb, the legendary Lee J. Cobb, played William F. Kinderman. Sharon Spencer played Kitty Wynn. She also is one, of, she's one of the only people to come back for Exorcist 2. Uh, Burke Dennings was played by Jack McGowan. Talk a little bit more about him. Joseph Dyer was played by Father William O'Malley, who was a real priest. Mm. Um, he wasn't an actor. And then, you know, there's other cast members. Uh, you know, I think the ones that really stick out are Mrs. Karras, played by uh, Vasiliki Mylaros, and... Uh, of course, the most I one of the one of the most important is the voice of Pazuzu, which was done by Mercedes McCambridge, which we'll talk about a little bit in the history. Yeah. Um, and the stunt double and face of Pazuzu, Eileen Dietz. They're you know, the other ones, they're minor roles. Uh so again, movie background and history here. So this case this was supposedly based on a real exorcism case that took place in april of 1949 in cottage city maryland it involved a 14 year old named ronald e hunklet hunkeller and basically there was a there was a whole journal created by the priests involved and there were some news stories and that's how young william peter blatty in 1949 had decided someday he would write about this so uh Basically, the you know the, the the there was a Ouija board involved. There was a floating desk in a classroom, supposedly. Uh, you know, the parents were lapsed Catholics, um, and there was incredible strength involved on the uh, you know on the part of the kid, which is what we see in the Exorcist. Reagan and thro- actually throws her mother across the room. She throws other people across the room. Uh, it got really cold, which again we'll talk about in the Exorcist because. I didn't mention it, the plot summary, but when the when the priests go in at one point, it's so cold you can see their breath. Um, and we'll talk about how that was done. And then writing appeared on skin, and then there was cursing in a strange voice. You know, again, this is all just what was recorded. And there was a Washington Post story in August 20, 1949. Of course, it was read by William Peter Blatty when he was going to school at Georgetown. Now, William Peter Blatty, um, 
was born in January of 1928. He was the fifth and youngest child of Lebanese immigrants. His parents were divorced when he was a baby. His mother was a devout Catholic, and he lived at 28 different addresses as a child. She was moving uh-huh. from place to place. Jeez. Yeah, crazy, huh? Yeah. Made him a little nuts, I think. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he was valedictorian at Brooklyn Preparatory, graduated from Georgetown uh, with a BA in English in 1950 and got his master's in 54. He worked various meaningful jobs before getting uh, PR jobs for the city of Los Angeles and USC. That's what he gets for being an English major, by the way. It's almost as bad as a history major, huh? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you got to work menial jobs, you know, like, uh, I don't know. Uh, anyways, uh, but it's good for podcasting research. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's played, played off in that, uh, at any rate, he wrote his first novel in, uh, 1960 called which way to Mecca Jack. And he won $10,000 on the game show. You bet your life, which was hosted by Groucho Marx. We briefly mentioned that in episode 18, which is our, uh, you know, um, in the butt Bob episode, you can listen to that. He then wrote subsequent novels, John Goldfarb, please come home. 1963. I, Billy Shakespeare, 1965, and Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane, 1966, <laughs> which is what would become the ninth configuration film later in his career. He also started writing screenplays, but what's interesting is he wrote comedy only. So he wrote The Man from the Diners Club, 1963, which is a, a Danny Kaye film, and Promise or Anything, 1965. And then he started collaborating. He also started collaborating with Blake Edwards, so the, with comedy director Blake Edwards, and he wrote the original uh, you know, the second Pink Panther film, A Shot in the Dark, probably his most famous screenplay other than this. What Did You Do in the War, Daddy? 1966. Gun, G-U-N-N, 1967. And Darling Lily, 1970. Nice. So, yeah, he, he, he was quite experienced as a screenplay writer before writing The Exorcist. But he always had this idea of writing this book since 1949. So he decided to do it in 67, and he pitched the idea uh, to an editorial director at a party who sort of took him up on it. Obviously, Rosemary's Baby took place in 1969. I think, or uh, was was the book was probably released before then. The film was made in 69. I think that was an influence for sure. Um, Chris, the character of Chris McNeil was supposedly based on Shirley MacLaine, who was Blatty's neighbor. Yeah, the book is different. So the You're book impressed it, from her turn in uh, Ocean's Eleven. That's right. Yeah somewhat fresh you know seven years or or eight nine years right or whatever whenever he started writing it but anyway uh and i think there was some interest of her in playing it but i don't think blatty ever had her in mind when he was starting to think about it as a film but it was more of a murder mystery centering on kinderman and jennings death which is kind of not a big deal in the movie it's kind of a really side thing it's also more overtly religious with Chris making speeches about God and stuff, which, of course, uh, um, Friedman, t- Friedman took that shit out. And that was kind of a bone of contention between the two of them because he wanted it to be more explicit because he saw it as a, a movie about regaining your faith. Kind of the theme was, you know, since there's evil, this level of evil in the world or possession, it proves the existence of God. And it's kind of a way of 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 you know, basically this crisis of faith and getting over it is the most important theme. And there's more dialogue between Karis and Marin on this as well. But Friedkin wasn't, was even though Friedkin shared this interest, as we'll talk about, he didn't, he didn't want to keep, he didn't want it explicitly said. 
Uh, so he took those things out. Kinderman, based on Columbo, totally. I think that's totally obvious. Um, and the book itself was written between summer 1969 and 1970. And there were already interest in film rights and some haggling and uh, a film for film rights before publication. It was published in January of 1971, and it didn't really take off at first, but then William Peter Blatty appeared on an episode of Dick Cavett as a last-minute replacement, and the book, you know, his interview after his interview, it just became a huge, massive bestseller. So Friedkin, born in um, August of 1935 in Chicago, his parents were Jewish immigrants from the Ukraine. His father was a semi-pro softball player and men's clothing salesman, as well as a merchant seaman, so his father wasn't really in his life. Hang on, hang on. I got to break this. Wait, wait a minute. A semi-pro softball player. I didn't the, know the, there was even pro softball. Yeah, like that doesn't even make any sense to me. That's what does dude, that even mean? Well, take it up with Wikipedia, man, because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I saw that too. And I'm player. like, hey, I didn't know there was pro softball. And then there's semi-pro softball. Maybe there's only semi-pro softball. In the 50s, in the 1950s in Chicago? Like 30s. Well, I don't even know if it was a thing. He was born in 35. So I think but his I mean, dad was probably he, a, a softball player at 35. It's like, why would you even care about softball? Yeah. Yeah. Like during the Great Depression, people were paying to see softball. I, I don't know. It doesn't even make sense. Uh, the clothing salesman, fine. And then I always enjoyed that merchant semen. I, I know. Like, what the fuck? Anyway, <laughs> take it up with Wikipedia. Uh, right. Anyway, uh, it turned out that Freakin, like when he was a kid, he was so good at basketball, he almost thought of turning pro, which is kind of mm. funny. Not semi-pro, just pro. Uh, semi-pro. Maybe he would just, yeah, I don't know. Okay, just checking. Or maybe he was going to join the semi-pro horse team or something. You know, yeah. I don't know. Uh, at any rate, or semi-pro three flies up or whatever. But but anyway, so he started in the mailroom of WGN TV after high school. and he wanted to become a filmmaker and he made this documentary in 1962 called the people versus Paul Crump, which was about a man that was accused of uh, murder. And he actually got the defendant uh, off of death row um, for that. So that's pretty cool. Um, he also worked early on, on an episode of Alfred Hitchcock presents called off season and Alfred Hitchcock actually kind of got in a fight with him because he wouldn't wear a tie uh, to to direct uh, when he was directing. Mm. At any rate, his first film is a movie called Good Times, which is kind of a musical vehicle, a Hard Day's Night style vehicle for Sonny and Cher. Never seen that. I'd be interested <laughs> in checking that out. <laughs> Go ahead, let me know. I don't think I can do it. Um, the Birthday Party, The Night They Rated Minky, M- Minsky's were both uh, films in 1968. The Night They Rated Minsky's is like a film about a, a comedic film about a strip club or burlesque club. And that got some notice. And then he really got a lot of critical acclaim uh, for a somewhat controversial film at the time, The Boys in the Band, which is about a group of gay male friends. So it was like the fir- one of the first kind of celluloid closet movies. Mm. Um, I think now it's kind of looked on as, you know, the gay community doesn't really they look at it as kind of dated, but I think it's still as a real groundbreaking they film like to make. They like this later movie about uh, the gay community, I think a little bit more, right? Oh, that's right. Oh my <laughs> God. Yeah, that's coming. That's coming. I don't think I even, did I put that in the history? If not, that's a I did. omission. I did. That's a huge omission. We need to talk about that. That's like a whole episode itself. We'll get to that movie you're talking about. Um, okay. So then he got the you know, he directed The French Connection. This was based on a nonfiction bestseller about the kind of heroin trade. It's a gritty cop movie. 
uh, starring Gene Hackman. It was a massive box office sensation, completely groundbreaking with this car chase that was, you know, really amazing. Best picture, best actor, director, screenplay and editing. It won all these awards. It was a massive success. Um, personally, I don't think much of this movie, actually. Me neither. I, th- I think it does. I think it's one of those movies where you had to be there. Um, yeah. Because at the time it was really groundbreaking, but I think there's been better movies just like it since. So I, I never, never really was that into this film. I couldn't get through it honestly. I yeah. watched it, trying like oh, it was supposed to be this great movie, and like I, it's James Woods is in it too, right? I think or uh, maybe in a bit it? part, yeah. Like who was the other guy who was his partner? It wasn't James I don't even Woods. remember. Anyway, like I, it's I like a blur to me. It didn't stick with yeah, me at all. It wasn't James Woods? It was somebody. Yeah, I, I just couldn't get through it. Anyway. The car chase under the, you know, the the metro train is cool, but it, it takes a while to get there. And it just doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't hold up to me. It just seems like a, a B-rate movie, like almost like a black exploitation level yeah, thriller. Totally. Like, I just don't get the, the, and I think the car chase and bullet is way cooler. So I don't, I don't know. I, I never really caught into this. I think, you know, obviously I think Gene Hackman's a great actor, but I've liked him better in other stuff. Um, at any rate, uh, so that's that, but that, but the thing is, is when they were first thinking of doing this movie, they sorry, it was Roy Scheider. I don't know why I said James Wood. Roy Scheider was the Roy Scheider, yeah. yeah Roy yeah. Scheider. Yeah. All that jazz. Great movie. Yeah. Anyway. Jaws. Um, how about how about like Jaws? That's like a Oh, and Jaws, of course. One yeah. of the greats of all time. But anyway. So so uh was gonna jump ahead about the French connection, but let's go back a step to when Friedkin and William Peter Blatty met. This was in 1969. So uh, Blake Edwards was planning on making a film version of Peter Gunn, which was Gunn, G-U-N-N, his his popular TV series. And uh, he the script was written by Blatty and was offered to Friedkin to direct. And Friedkin said, it's the worst script I've ever read. He hated it. <laughs> and Blatty agreed that it sucked. So they became friends. It's kind of funny. <laughs> and they both had these weird relationships because their fathers were absentee fathers and their mothers were really strict and religious. And uh, so they kind of bonded on that. And when Blatty finished the the book and he started to get film interest, he, he always had Freakin in mind after that because they became close friends. Now Warner's option the film, but didn't want Freakin at first. And once the French connection hit and all the buzz and critical acclaim and, and box office, they immediately shifted gears and said, yes, we, we change our minds. Freakin will be great. The original screenplay was too long with too many flashbacks, uh, too many other gimmicks, according to Freakin. So they streamlined the screenplay. Uh, one of the important key uh, crew was makeup artist Dick Smith. And he was responsible for, you know, obviously a lot of the effects you see on screen. And he had this assistant named Rick Baker. So this is one of the first mm. times Rick Baker was involved in a film. Uh, they also cast Max Van Sido as Marin, who's supposed to be really old. So there's a lot of old age makeup. Uh, he's only age 42. Um, and then visual effects, they got this guy, Marcel Vercoulter. Um, and the thing about the visual effects in this movie is it's all really there. Like all the shit you're seeing is really happening. There's almost no optical effects, like post optical effects they put on the film. Obviously, there's there's a few. One of them is the barf. Uh, they tried yeah. to get the barf to work out of a like a tube, uh, you know, that was connected to to Reagan. They tried it with Eileen Dietz and Reagan never worked, so they just added it in post production. But almost none of the visual effects are 
not happening in real time in front of the people involved. So uh, Verkulater built this whole set. The bedroom set was on wheels. So that whole room is on wheels so that they could move it around. So when you see things moving around and flying around, they're all really, really doing uh, that. Uh, and obviously the spinning head, you know, it's a fake head, you know, but it was built by Dick Smith and Marcel Vicoulater. Um, and you could tell it's fake, but I'll argue why I think that's still okay. Um, now, casting Karis, again, everyone in Hollywood wanted this role. Jack Nicholson, Paul Newman, all interested. And originally, Stacey Keach was chosen, uh, which is funny because Blatty would later cast him in Ninth Configuration. Uh because he felt bad for for him uh getting losing out on this role but they uh i think friedkin saw jason miller play and they were just like whoa you know this guy's perfect even though he was uh mostly known as a playwright and not an actor uh studio didn't want burston at first uh friedkin had to convince them of that um mike nicholson was originally supposed to direct the, or he was one of the early choices, but he completely passed because he thought due to Reagan's age, he didn't want the success of a film depending on the acting abilities of a kid. Um, so the film had thousands of audition tapes from 12 to 13 year old girls for Reagan. Uh, Linda Blair at the time of casting was 13. Um, she had done some modeling and commercials and a court actually had to interview her and certify that she was stable enough to handle the role because of all the stuff that happens in the movie. Um, and post-shooting, after they shot the film and before uh, when it was released, she did this kind of tour, you know, around the country to prove she was sane after yeah, doing the movie. I don't think it worked because she went on to a rather illustrious drug career. Yeah, um, yeah, it's true. Although she seems pretty well off now. You know, she yeah. seems like she's in good shape now, you know loving the animals and all that. So yeah. um, Dyer and Canavan, the actors who played uh, uh, Dyer and Canavan were actually uh, real priests. Um, and producer Noel Marshall. So the producer was this guy, Noel Marshall, who was kind of involved with the movie. He was kind of a nut job. He was actually married to Tippi Hedren at the time. Mm. And they lived, this is a very famous story where they actually had this, at their house, they had all these fucking lions. Hmm. And there's actually a movie about this called Roar that was made. That's kind of, I think, kind of a cult film, a hard to see about, it's like a documentary about them raising all these lions. And they fucking like, uh, you know, their daughter, uh, I don't know if Noel Marshall, I don't think Noel Marshall was her father, but maybe her stepfather, but uh, Tippi Hedren's daughter, Melanie Griffith, was actually fucking scarred by one of these things. And I think several, uh, I think Noel Marshall was attacked and wounded. I mean, it's a fucking lions. Yeah. People are <laughs> pets, you know, it's crazy. There's all these scary parts of the movie where the crew is all afraid because these lions are just fucking walking around. It's kind of an interesting one. So as far as production, shooting began on uh, August of 1972 and lasted nine months. So it went way over uh, time and budget. It was shot in D.C. and New York. They didn't do almost any shooting in Hollywood due to the fact that the labor laws were more strict in California for child labor because they wanted, of course, to... You know, they needed Linda Blair to be there for so much of this. Reagan's room used a $50,000 uh, air conditioning system, which occasionally would fail. And so they would have to shut down filming to recool the room because the when you're seeing the actor's breath in that room, it's all real. They froze mm -hmm. the room and they actually covered her in electric blankets, which is pretty awesome. Um, 
the production designer uh, had done some stuff that uh, Friedkin didn't like, so they had to uh, fire him after six weeks. There was a fire in in that whole set that cost $200,000 that caused more delays. Uh, as I mentioned, everything's happening is real. Uh, the visual, only visual effect was the pea soup effect, uh, which was pea soup. Um, Deets doubled for Blair in a couple of scenes, but later after the filmmaking, she would argue she was in it a lot more. And Friedkin said she was in it for about like 10 seconds. Supposedly, William Friedkin was known for, in order to get reactions out of his actors, for fucking firing a gun, like just having a gun on set and firing it in the air. Um, he actually had to slap O'Malley in order to get um, a reaction out of him. Uh, so, yeah, he had to slap him at one point. So he was, a he's, priest. A, he's yeah, crazy he's now. Like, Freakin's yeah. crazy now. Yeah. I mean, well, he's dead now. But before he was dead, he was crazy. I heard an interview with him. He's all into conspiracy theories and shit. He's fucking nuts. Um, in any way, at any rate, there's one scene where they kind of padded up Ellen Burstyn and actually flung her across the room. Um, and she actually said she got permanently injured from that. She has a permanent back injury from that. The temperature in the Iraq scenes was 120 degrees. And so Sidow's makeup was like melting during the scenes. They had constant issues. And in addition, there was like a freaking coup going on in Iraq. I think this is when maybe Saddam Hussein came to power. But there was like a military coup. So when they were trying to fly back and forth to Iraq, they were held in the airport because there was actually some violence going on. Uh, the budget was originally $5 million. It rose to $12 million before uh, the end of everything. And Mercedes McCambridge was brought in because obviously Linda Blair saying your mother sucks cocks in hell didn't really work. Although she does say that fuck me thing, which is pretty yeah. crazy. But she, all the lines just sounded really not very good. You know, she was, we'll talk about her acting and, you know. I mean, number one, she was a child. So it's kind she of. She was a kid. And, you know, just yeah. like it just didn't sound as good. So they got Mercedes McCambridge who just came in and drank a bunch of booze and smoked a bunch of cigarettes till her voice was all <laughs> fucking craggy. And it came out perfectly. <laughs> what a gig, right? Yeah, exactly. So originally they wanted uh, Bernard Herman to do the music, but he couldn't do it. He was working on other films. So they got Lalo Shipman. They could have hired my neighbor for free because that's all he does. Anyway. Huh? They could have hired my neighbor for free to do that. All he does is smoke and drink. Oh, yeah. Sounds like the devil. (laughs) Well, there's still Exorcist Believer just came out and there's two more. So, you know, maybe you can chime in. Uh, But anyway, Bernard Herman was supposed to do the music. Uh, they hired Lalo Schifrin. I think you can hear his original soundtrack online. I haven't checked it out, but Friedkin hated it. He said, never play this again for me. And, uh, but he had he had uh, probably at a weed, heavily weed smoking party had heard Tubular Bells and yeah. loved it. And so he um, he's written to kind of proggy shit because he would use Tangerine Dream for Sorcerer, which is one of my favorite all time favorite movie soundtracks. Um, and but he loved it. So they they brought in Tubular Bells. Uh, there was again editing during the editing phase. There was massive controversy between uh, Friedkin and Blatty because of these extra dialogue scenes between Marin and Karras, and uh, between you know Kinderman and and Dyer, and they decided to scrap that. Uh, as far as the Exorcist, there is like all this stuff about a curse, right? There's a curse on everyone who made it. You know, it's part of the mythology. Uh, obviously the set, as I mentioned, burned, uh, McGowan actor, um, uh, McGowan who played Burt Dennings died two weeks after filming. Uh, there was also other deaths. Sidow's Van Sidow's brother, uh, Linda Blair's grandmother, 
grandfather and her pet mouse died. A limo driver's daughter had satanic delusions during the filming and had to be committed. Mm. So, yeah. As far as the reception, it was released the day after Christmas, 1226-1973. Um, there were massive lines. And of course, you heard at the beginning of the show, we played some of the audience reaction. Uh, there was actually a miscarriage during, uh, supposedly during the film, there was vomiting. Uh, the critics gave it mixed reviews. Uh, some critics like Pauline Kael didn't like it. Others loved it. Um, and Mercedes McCabridge immediately got in the press because she wasn't originally credited at the end of the film for the voice of Pazuzu. So uh, th that was changed. She was given credit. Um, and, and of course, uh, Eileen Dietz also had controversy. She was going around saying she was in the film more than they said. It was a massive box office success, massive lines. It made, uh, I mean, in its initial run, I'm not sure how it made, how much it made, but it's made $441.3 million, making it, it was the most successful R-rated film until uh, it was released in the 2010s, 2017. Now it was nominated for quite a bit, uh, quite a few awards. Um, the Directors Guild Award uh, was not given to Friedkin, though he was beaten out by uh, director George Roy Hill, who directed The Sting. And as you'll as you'll see, that you know is, is a running theme here. It was nominated for seven Golden Globes, and it won four, including Linda Blair for supporting actress. Now there was this whole campaign in the Academy by director George Cukor who hated the film and uh, supposedly he had had this campaign to keep it from getting nominated for Oscars. And it's rumored that he caused the whole special effects category to be canceled for that year, even though The Exorcist would have been a shoe in for that. But The Exorcist still got a ton of nominations. It was the first horror film to be nominated for Best Picture. What, um, by the way, what, why, why was he so against this film? Because of all the profanity and the grossness and just uh, he was just offended by the film. Mm. He's like an old school dude, you know? Yeah. Okay. Old Hollywood. Go fuck off. I love that, George. So as far as the nominees, among the nominees, you know, obviously uh, it was nominated for Best Sound, of course, which is a given. And it won for that. Uh, Blatty was one nominated for a screen uh, for screenplay, adapted screenplay. And he won for that. Uh, it was beat out by uh, for best director and picture by The Sting and uh, George Roy Hill. Um, and win Lin uh, best uh, urination scene as well. <laughs> well, that's one of the special effects, maybe. I don't uh, know. Yeah, I uh, we don't know if uh, Linda Blair actually it was her own urine or not. I honestly don't. don't know. But anyway, Linda Blair was nominated, but she lost out to another child actor, Tatum O'Neill, for Paper Moon. Mm. And we'll talk about her performance in my evaluation uh, and maybe Jeff's. Uh, and what's interesting, though, is the film was rated R. So that means that you could go to the film accompanied by an adult. But some regions of the country actually rated it X of their own accord. And theaters in D.C. and Boston actually prevented any children from seeing the film. So it was like X rated. Only adults could go in. Not Even surprising though, in Boston. It had a reputation for banning all sorts of. Yeah, exactly. Movies. Please, so there you go. Movies, I think, Boston's kind of weirdly conservative. And, it, you know, there is the whole Catholic thing. Although, if you think about it, Catholics should be in favor of this movie because it's made to scare people into, you know, believing in the devil and, you know, believing that yeah. 
the, the devil could be cast out by priests. So, yeah. Yeah. And Blatty actually posted, he, he protested, he posted this huge ad in variety the next day saying this, what the exorcist was obviously the best picture of the year should have won. You know, he uh, complained about this and, and stuff like that and about the yeah. whole campaign. As far as the aftermath goes, there wasn't any pederasty by the priests. So, oh yeah, uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. We got to address that in our evaluations, man. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, I think I'll just say it right here. I think the scariest part for anybody in the movie is a little girl in bed and two priests coming in a room. The the little girl was safe. It was a little boy. They would be trouble. I know, Father. Why is this holy water so sticky? You know, and what's that weird pink bottle you're, you're using? I mean, it's, little it's girl uh, fine. Yeah, it's, I thought I thought that's the most scary part of the movie is just, you know, a girl alone with two priests. Anyway, uh, so after that, obviously it was a massive success. So there was sequel talk. Exorcist II, The Heretic was released in 1977. It was widely panned. Uh, it's mostly thought of as it was a bomb. It was mo- It's mostly thought of as one of the worst films ever made. And it really is. It's really awful and stupid and only tangentially related to the original. Uh, Blatty made the ninth configuration, as I mentioned, in 1980. In 1990, uh, Blatty directed The Exorcist Three, And this was based, it was based on his book Legion, but it's quite different from the original. For one thing, they actually cast Brad DeRiff to be essentially Karis, and the plot is basically he's in this mental asylum, but that he's possessing these other people to murder people. That's why it's called Legion. Um, and they kind of had to change the film because they eventually got uh, Jason Miller back. But Jason Miller at this time was a massive alcoholic, so they barely could use him. So it's this weird thing where they he appears sometimes as Jason Miller, sometimes as Brad Dourif. It's pretty silly. Um, but there's some good jump scares. There's like one scene where you're like, it, you're in this hospital corridor and you see this robed figure just go by in the background and it's a huge jump scare. There's a couple of good ones. It's definitely better than two, but it, I don't think it's even close to the original. As I mentioned in my personal history in 2000, they had the version you've never seen before, which is more of a producer's cut than a director's cut and included the missing spider walk scene, some more scenes of medical torture during the medical scenes, uh, extra scenes with, uh, you know, Kinderman and, and Dyer, um, extra scenes between Marin and Karras, and some terrible CGI of Pazuzu faces popping up in the background. Um, again, I mentioned Dominion and the begin- Exorcist at the beginning. These are prequels that are basically uh, the story of Marin's Exorcist he had done earlier, starring Stellan Sarsgaard. And there's different casts in these movies and different things that happen. Again, I've never seen them. In the 2010s, there was a short-lived TV series that only really ran for like a season and a half. Um, People say it's, some people liked it. I've never seen it. The new trilogy has just started with Exorcist Believer. Um, It's gotten completely panned. Uh, People say it's terrible. It's funny. They actually, Ellen Burstyn's in it. She's like fucking 90 years old now. So they filmed all of her scenes for the whole trilogy because they don't know when she's going to drop dead. And of course, Linda Blair shows up at the end of the movie. I think it's Linda Blair is going to be like the uh, what's her name? Uh, Strode, you know, the uh, I forget her name, Julie Strode, uh, the, you know, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis character in Halloween. It's just like it's the same uh, David Gordon Green who directed the Halloween remakes that had the, the new Halloween movies that had just come out. 
it looks terrible and and it's gotten really bad reviews and one thing that really pissed me off was they decided to go full woke so it's not just a priest but they have like some kind of fucking witch doctor in there doing the exorcist too because it's all faiths <laughs> oh, like what geez. are they gonna have a muslim imam in there and you know yeah. a rabbi and the whole uh it's just gets it's like a parody of itself <laughs> So, so at any rate, Buddhist, some Buddhist ex- exorcism as well. Might as well add that. Right. Yeah, exactly. You have a you have yeah. a fucking Buddhist dude and a fucking, yeah. you know, Hindu guy. But anyway, uh, you know, I mentioned Blatty. He had he had did the ninth configuration. And he also wrote Legion and directed Exorcist three. As far as Friedkin goes, um, basically, he followed up the Exorcist. It took him four years. He made a remake of Wages of Fear called Sorcerer. Ironically, I have a huge movie poster in my office of this. I have the soundtrack. I have never seen this fucking movie. And the reason is, is I want to see it on the big screen. People say it's fucking awesome, but it was a huge, huge bomb. It basically came out right when Star Wars came out, I think the same weekend. And it kind of didn't get great reviews when it came out, but people have since recognized it's really good. He followed that up with Cruisin'. 1980, which, of course, Jeff and I watched in college, which is a fucking insane film that was extremely controversial. So as as well received as Boys in the Band was by the the gay community at the time, Cruisin' was hugely controversial for its depiction of of the kind of gay subculture of New York. Uh, But I don't know. I think it's fucking pretty damn good. Yeah, Um, it was good. We might have to revisit that. We have to do like a a fucking cruise in the movies featuring cruising episode in the future, right? We always talk about. I mean, I kind of, I mean, we we don't have to get in here. I kind of get why it was a little controversial. I totally do. I don't, but (laughs) it's total, of course it is. uh, But I think it's actually kind of a good thriller. I do too. I think it's good. I think it's Al Pacino's great in it. But anyway, another show. Uh, to Live and Die in L.A., his kind of uh, Miami Vice-inspired noir, uh, was released in 1985. He probably had some other films. I'm just highlighting the ones I give a shit about. And To Live and Die in L.A., I fucking love. I think it's a great movie. I think it totally holds up. Jade, 1994, this is kind of his basic instinct. It's based on a screenplay by Joe Esterhaus. It's kind of his uh, neo-noir, you know, naughty 90s uh, neo-noir kind of thing. It, it was widely panned. He's made some other shit, whatever. You know, he lived He lived really long. He died just this year. So, you know, RIP. I think most of his important films were made, you know, in the early half of his career. Uh, and he did convert to Christianity and he made a documentary about it. So, and he also became a right-wing nut job, believing all these conspiracies toward the end of his life. It's really sad. Uh, there's a great podcast called The Movies That Made Us, which is hosted by, uh, among I forget the two hosts name, but one of them is director Joe Dante, who's like fun to listen to because he's like a fucking rain man of movie history. Like he's got this incredible memory, but they interviewed him, Friedkin, and he was just nuts. And it was really disappointing to me. Uh, Ellen Burstyn, of course, followed this up. So she did not win the Best Actress Oscar in 1973. I didn't mention this. Um, She was beaten by Glenda Jackson, who won for a comedy film called The Touch of Class, which I'm sure no one fucking remembers. Glenda Jackson won twice. She won for Women in Love in 1970 as well, you know, world-renowned actress. But no, I don't think anybody remembers fucking Touch of Class. I think she was robbed, but I will get into that more. But she did win uh, for Martin Scorsese's uh, 
one of Martin Scorsese's earlier films, Alice Doesn't Live Anymore, 1974, which, of course, did eventually result in the Alice TV show, which I'm sure I'm sure we'll, we'll get into at some point. Yeah, Mel Sharples. Yeah, Vic Tabak's in the movie, too, but is not he? everybody uh, is uh, from the uh, cast. Flo's not in it. Right. Obviously, Linda Blair went on to create, you know, great films like Savage Streets and movies about women in prison and great films like that uh, and Exorcist too, but she's also in the new trilogy um, at any rate. And she's become this uh, animal advocate, which is always laudable. So that's kind of the whole history there. I'm sure we've missed a few things, but you know, I think we got to get into the meat of the podcast here with the evaluation. So Jeff, go yeah. for it. All right, here we go. So it was it was interesting. I, I watched this recently, um, I, you know, and it was funny watching this movie because the look of it is of such this the era. This early seventies had such a look in film, and the French Connection looked like this, and Godfather actually was a little later looked like this, and and, and a lot of those early seventies movies just had this. Very similar cinematography, similar camera technology, maybe even, yeah, and all that. And, and this, and this movie definitely had uh, that look. There were a couple of things you read through the plot, uh, obviously, and went through that in detail. There's a couple of things on there that I just struck me as strange. Um, I mentioned this earlier: the Marin stuff in Africa, or not in Africa, actually in Iraq, it has references to the Af- Africa stuff. It just seemed out of place. It was, it was supposed to be kind of freaky and weird, and connecting this ancient history to the modern of, you know, 19, early 1970s. And it just it didn't connect to me. It was just, it was just like, you're waiting for, it was, it was very uh, drawn out. Um, you were waiting for this important connection between this ancient history, this archeological history with these different artifacts that would connect the kind of, you know, past exorcisms, as you were saying, to the, to the modern. And it just kind of like left me this like, they just did it half-assed, you know? It's, it's like, why even have that in there? They didn't really go into it other than there's a couple trinkets that they kind yeah, of so referred I back did, to. Yeah, so I missed that in the plot. So in the plot, there is a shot after Marin's dead where you see, there. I think there's it's one of the shots during the whole exorcism, uh, which is like the last 30 minutes of the film. There's a You see a shot of the statue of Pazuzu overlaid next to Linda Blair kind of levitating, I think, is what you see. Yeah. Or she, no, Linda Blair's like up on upright on the bed and you see that. So that connects it back. And obviously the character of Marin is, is alluded to. So that's the main connection. I just didn't, it, it just wasn't very well woven in. It wasn't right. very compelling to me. The power of Christ did not compel me to be interested in that. <laughs> Dude. Um, the plot with Karis was weird. The whole, you know, long suffering priest with the crisis of, you know, belief and all that was, it was all right. I mean, the actor was fine and all that, but the plot with his dead mother was just bizarre. You had this elderly, elderly woman who, you know, was trying to live by herself in New York, as you mentioned, and he was in, you know, DC working at Georgetown but when he had to put her into, you know, a facility because she was so old, he's like racked with guilt over it and she dies. And the whole subplot is, is him being terribly guilty over the death of his extremely elderly mother. It's like, um, I got news for you. Elderly people die. You know, I, yeah. I just didn't understand why he was so messed up by that. We forgot another plot point related to this that might kind of be relevant to what you're saying, which is, of course, that eventually Linda Blair does. So one of the last things his mother says when she's kind of 
put in the hospital or institutionalized or whatever she's done right before she dies. So there's a scene with um, Karis and his uncle, and it's applied that the uncle lives near the mother and he's kind right. of more responsible for taking care of her. And there's a scene where she says, why would you do this to me, Denny? Yeah. And then you see Linda Blair later say that in the exact voice. And that's when Marin's like, don't listen. Cause Marin tells him, don't listen to anything. The demon says it's trying to, you know, yeah, fuck with you. Yeah. So, so that's kind of ties it back to the mother and his guilt. And of course there's that whole dream sequence I mentioned as well. Yeah, no, I, I mean, they did try to tie all that back. I just don't understand why he would be guilty about the death of an extremely old woman who, well, yeah. like old people is going to die. It just right. didn't, it was very empty to me. It's just like, what? He's like so racked with guilt that it's constantly haunting him. And I'm just like, what? I don't know. Maybe we're trying to say he's guilty because he lived, uh, you know, 200 miles away or like, I, I don't know. I, I just didn't understand why it was such a big, a big deal or they had some kind of, very strange relationship or something like that. But that was weird. Um, the, the other thing for me is a lot of the stuff that was supposed to be scary that you said was scary. You'll talk about this. And I could definitely see in 1973 or whatever, it being scary to me, wasn't scary at all. Right. Like, I, I just didn't find the, the, the special effects and all that scary. I, I thought they were kind of funny. Um, it, it didn't really have the intended effect. And I think that it's just because it was out of place in time. Like, me, again, maybe in 1973, it would have been that way to me. But after seeing, you know, 50 years of horror movies and, and other things, it just, I don't know, it just didn't look, it didn't have the impact I think it probably would have had, had I seen it live at the time. And and I've never seen it on a big screen. Maybe uh, that would be different. But I was kind of like almost laughing at kind of the some of the effects. And But the question, the I have that, a question for you. So do you yeah. find any movies scary? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think, for example, I found the original Nightmare on Elm Street scary when I saw it as a young teenager. Right, right. So like I, I do. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. Do I have the capacity to be scared by a movie? I think so. Maybe more creeped out than scared. Yeah. Um. So I, I think that's a fair question. I just didn't find this to be, you know, like, for example, I think jump scares are cheap tricks, you know. Yeah. Sorry, Rick Nielsen. But like, yeah, I, I just don't think that that I get why directors do it. And you, yeah, sure, I, I could be made to jump like anybody else, but that's not really scary. It's sort of, you know, again, it, it's it's a it's a it's a little bit of a gimmick. Um, yeah, and this movie only has like one, which is just yeah. a candle blowing blowing yeah. up. Yeah, there's not. It's not a jump scary kind of movie. Exorcist three, like I said, has a few, and there are a few other movies that have that. This isn't really that style, right? Yeah. So I, I mean, in watching it going back, I was just like, yeah, okay. Like I can see it. I was sort of laughing at some of the stuff I did to your point, think that some of the medical stuff was just very uncomfortable because it was so stark and real by design, Yeah, you know, with the lights and, and yeah, I definitely think that was stuff. intentional. Yeah, of, of course. And I, I did find that to be very unsettling and creepy and, 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 uh, gross, but it was supposed to be, especially when performed on a child, you know, a 12-year-old little girl, uh, all that, which was supposed to be like they're subjecting this poor kid to all these all these horrible, uh, you know, spinal taps and, you know, angiograms and all these, you know, horrific medical tests, which would be horrific for anybody, let alone a kid. Um, the actress, the Alan Burstyn, the Chris McNeil character, it was just such an over-the-top 70s actress kind of role. It was just like, ugh. Really, people carried on like this. And I know they did because like every 
every kind of uh, character of the 70s that was supposed to be some kind of famous woman actress was always this like, I have everything going on. I'm a single mother. I'm like in the 80s. It was even more this way. It was just a little fucked out to me. Uh, just uh, too much. The director character was funny. I, I didn't realize until you were mentioning it, it was supposed to be probably uh, Roman Polanski. I've never um, heard that. It's just what came to my mind because he kind of resembles him. And then there's the whole Holocaust thing. The whole yeah. thing. He's haranguing that uh, the, that the, guy uh, at the party. Yeah, who claims he's Swiss, not German. And, but but the, 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 which was also kind of amusing because I'm sure half the people did claim that weren't, wasn't true. But the, but that director character was just like so over the top. And again, it was kind of a, a denizen of the, of the 70s sort of stock character closet to me. I enjoyed that though. I, I kind of like those, those, those sorts of characters. Um, the, the, a lot of it was, uh, you know, deliberate shock value. Um, you could tell that, at, especially at the time, and I try to keep this in mind, that in the early 70s, a lot of these things had never been done in movies before. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the girl peeing on the floor, you know, some of the language, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff was supposed to be really over the top uh, shock value stuff. And I certainly believe at the time it was, but, you know, 50 years later, not so much. So I mean, although I that, doubt anyone would make this shit now with a girl not. saying that stuff. Maybe not, but, but the, but the, um, the visual effects, the, um, the light, maybe, maybe, but like people using that kind of language, people using that kind of, maybe did people be afraid of the religious context now? I'm not certain. Maybe. I don't know. Um, anyway, as a cultural thing, the influence is completely undeniable. Hugely, hugely, hugely influence, influential culturally as a movie. We talked about how every movie that opens up with some dig in the desert is essentially influenced by this, in my opinion. Um, some did it much better subsequently, but that as an aside, I do think that the idea that you're finding some history, uh, you're uncovering some ancient history that has um, relevancy to your plot in the desert is a trope at this point. And this movie was probably one of the original ones that, uh, if not the original one that that sort of set that thing. All the references to you know head spinning around and the Jesus power of Christ compels you. And, you know, all that stuff came from this movie, right? So I think people refer, it's always interesting when people have all these cultural references to things that they actually don't know where it came from, um, which, by the way, as an aside, I got to laugh at something. At my work, there was a, a some kind of event, and the symbol for the event was that Maxwell tape ad where the guy's in the chair with the sound blowing his hair back. You remember that? Um, you, you know, the audience is listening. Remember that? Oh, ad? yeah, 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 absolutely. Which is absolutely. a completely iconic ad. But gen all the kids around today, they don't even know that ad. They just know that as an image of something where yeah. somebody's being blown away by something sitting right, in a right. chair. So this is kind of, which I found incredibly annoying because I work with all these children um, who wouldn't even, you know, don't think the 80s is just like from, you know, 150 years ago. So fuck all of you uh, who are that young. Um, and and uh, so anyway, the... Uh, Influence is completely undeniable. Linda Blair is more interesting to me because as a 15-year-old, so I think two years after they filmed this, so she was 13 when they filmed it, the little girl was supposed to be 12, Rick Springfield was dating her. Wow. So 25-year-old Rick Springfield. And uh, so go ahead and wrap your head around that. And the other thing I just want to say is like, why was it okay 
for all these dudes in the 70s to have these teenage girlfriends and they're not canceled by all this, including Rick Springfield. Oh, Jimmy Page. it's been talked about. People talk about it, although I don't I haven't heard Rick Springfield's name, but one is David Bowie. He did it, underage girl, uh, and obviously Jimmy Page as Jimmy well. Jimmy Page, very famously. And but Jimmy Page, not only was she underage, she was famously underage and traveled around the world as a yeah. 15 or 16-year-old girl. Lori Maddox was is the Yeah, Lori Maddox. Name. That's right. A uh, woman now, obviously. But like anyway, I just found that weird. She also dated uh, Glenn Hughes. So, wow. uh, from Deep Purple. From so, Deep Purple. Uh, Pardo, uh, if you're listening uh, yeah. out there from Sea Tranquility. <laughs> You want to break well, you know, this you. is Pete's favorite movie. So yeah, is it really? anyway? Um, yeah, yeah because of that? his favorite movie yeah. of all time. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he just like every number one album is always Deep Purple. So uh, oh, he loves Deep Purple. It's between it, Deep Purple and Sabbath. Are his two I know, favorites. and then of course White Snake, which I'll never get. That's a whole other episode. Anyway, <laughs> Pete, if you're listening, dude, like, I know. I, I get the Deep Purple and Black Sabbath thing. You rate them too highly, but I mean, White Snake not shouldn't be on any top anything list. Yeah, sorry, dude. Um, she also dated Tommy Shaw, which you wow. know looks like a little girl. So that actually yeah. is you know, <laughs> kind of. And then Neil Geraldo, as you mentioned, you know, before uh, before Pat Benatar, it was uh, Linda Blair. I think she's a little bit older at that point, not much. And then Rick James, of course, which just has its own set of issues of, of being. Uh, oh yeah, Rick, Rick James. So I mean, Linda Blair, of course, went on to have you know a lot of personal drug issues and things like that. Sounds like she's more or less together now. And, and, and as an animal rights activist, something that I highly support, of course, um, as well. Um, where I come down on this movie, uh, as far as it being, you know, long, short, neutral, short for me, and very short. I don't think this movie's going to hold up. I watched this and just left the movie just going like, I get why this was influential and all the things I said, but 30 years from now, somebody watching this movie, I just don't think it will have any of the impact that it had originally. Um, or people who were around, maybe movie buffs would get why it was so important. But if you just showed this to a regular person, he was just like, hey, are you scared by the Exorcist movie? They're going to be like, no, there's like some chick spitting out green shit and bouncing around. Like it, it just, I just don't think it's going to be, have the power that it did at the time in the future. And then as a movie, it just sort of left me just like going, eh, I just wasn't that impressed by it. I wasn't impressed by the story. I wasn't that impressed by the special effects. The look of it was so dated. And and even though I like that era of stuff personally, I just don't think it's going to hold up for people seeing it 20, 30 years from now, which I know is probably going to be controversial for people who think it's a classic, but I just left the movie just going, I don't get it. I don't yeah. get this being one of an all-time, I think, all-time great dude. Movies. I think we need an exorcism. I think the yeah. power of Christ compels you to like this movie. Um, no, that's cool, dude. I I kind of get your your criticisms, um, but of course, I have a very different opinion of yeah. this. Um, first of all, so the film, the opening. So I think one of the things I really like about this film is just the quality of the filmmaking, the the cinematography. Everything is amazing to me. And I love the opening. And the reason is, is what it kind of does is even the opening shot looks like something from Spartacus or Ten Commandments in a way. There's these, you know, you're basically in the desert in Iraq and you have all this vast cinema scope view of all these workers, you know, at an archaeological dig. And I think what it does is almost establishes this as an anti-biblical epic in a way. It gives it that epic feel where it where it could just be a B movie 
you're basically watching this and you're like, no, this is a full movie. This is like a full uh, cinematic, uh, you know, movie, even though the story starts from this broad, you know, wide vistas and, you know, uh, weird, quiet scenes of like these weird, creepy scenes of dogs fighting and desert scenes and, you know, scenes in markets. It's like it, it condenses down to a single room, which I think is really cool. Uh, what's funny in the Mad Magazine parody, I'm going to keep saying, because I think this is one of the best Mad Magazine parodies I ever read, the Exorcist, right? So uh, what what it does is it does the same thing Jeff does. It says, what the fuck are we doing in Iraq? You know, or what are we yeah. doing in Iraq? And then it says, we moved from Iraq to a house in Washington, D.C., where there is evil is brewing. And of course, they show the White House and they're like, oh, not that house where evil is brewing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, of course, this is all during Watergate, so they had yeah, to throw yeah, yeah. that in. But that, I thought that was a really good joke. Um, so anyway, I, I really like the opening scenes and I find them mysterious and creepy because there's, you know, just weird tension to them. Like there's a scene where these guys are hammering in the background and Marin is kind of taking his pills. And there's like these the scene of the dogs fighting weird scene of the statue. It just sets this vibe to me. And I think it's okay that it's not, I think Jeff's criticism is actually interesting. I can see that, but I just don't agree. I think it's fine that it's a little disjointed. And I think it comes back to Marin in the end. I mean, the movie does tread a lot of territory, right? And you could argue maybe that lacks focus, but I don't have a problem with it, right? So it's just the continuity didn't work for me. You know, it can work to be disjointed. Something can be disjointed and work. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. I think one interesting thing, too, is I'm going to talk a lot about the realism here, because obviously what's happening is a fantasy. There's no way this would happen in real life, or at least not the same way. But we could talk about that, Um, you know, with the face being distorted and the levitation, all this stuff going on. But there is a realism here. And one thing that the movie does is it kind of fucks with that. It lets you know you're watching a movie all the time. So the first scene in Washington we see is a film set. So it's like, it's reminding you you're watching a movie and then and then later in the film there's this kinderman who's talking about like making jokes about oh i saw othello and it starred groucho marx and you know uh, debbie reynolds and he's like he's a movie buff he's talking about movies yeah. and he wants an autograph from the actress and the, you know we're, we're seeing the actress is playing an actress so it's like the movie's it's it's constantly kind of teasing you that you are watching a movie in an interesting way and um you know as far as the Ellen Burstyn's performance, I think it's great. I think she totally was robbed. I mean, I haven't seen a touch of class. Maybe Glenda Jackson, she's fucking brilliant. But I would say most people would say she was robbed by the kind of uh, film being a little too controversial. Uh, I think she's hysterical through a lot of the film, as Jeff points out. But I think that's how someone would be in this situation, right? There's something wrong with her daughter. No one could figure it out. Things are, she's seeing things. Things are flying around rooms. She gets knocked around. Yeah. Uh, you know, her daughter's face is all fucked up and sticking a crucifix in her, you know, her vagina, jabbing, wounding herself. I mean, this is like, to me, how someone would be. So it, it makes sense. And, and even in the earlier Earlier scenes, there's you could already see her start to unravel. I think it's a great performance. Um, as far as Father Karras, I think the reason for that side plot is that this is a movie about the crisis of faith. Now, whether I buy this message or not, it is basically you're dealing with the overlap between psychiatry, psychology, and you know 
religion. And this movie's theory is there are some things beyond science, you know, and that's where religion comes in. And that's where the doctors run out of things. So it's all about that gap. And I think even if you take the movie as Reagan isn't possessed, but is insane, like obviously the person in 1949 was not possessed by a demon because we know that stuff doesn't exist. But the person probably was mentally unstable, right? And had mental illness. And the whole mystery and frustration of science not being able to deal with someone's problems, right? Someone's mentally ill and the parent kind of freaking out, I think is a really interesting way to view this movie. Even though, you know, obviously we see things that are fantastical on the screen, right? So I I really like that dichotomy and I didn't mind Karis. Uh, and as far as Karis's mother, again, it's this whole, he's, it, it's kind of another side plot to show that he has this weird crisis of faith. Like he's dealing with his mother who's dying and right, you say, well, everybody dies, but of course he's having trouble with it. It's emotional. It's his own mother. And he's having this disconnection with that. And he's basically questioning why God would do this, you know, it, essentially. And it's his crisis of faith. Right. So yeah. I, I, I didn't mind that either. I liked it and I liked his performance in general. And I just think the movie, the look of it is early seventies, but it's in a very real way. Like everything looks real. And in fact, the household, like the party and all the servants and stuff makes it seem more real in a sense than a house where it's just a mother and a father or just a house in the country. It's like this bustling modern thing where you have this actress who's like on her own, right? Her husband has left her. It's this yeah. working woman. So it puts you in the modern era. And I think I liked all that stuff. I thought it was an unusual decision on Blatty's part to kind of make this woman like a working single mother and having to deal with this weird ancient thing. You know, it's like she's dealing with her modern life. She, she's got these kind of socialite parties. And, you know, she's working on this movie about student protests, which I'll have more to say about in a bit and all this. And uh, yet and and you, the scenes are very realistic at the beginning with, you know, her interacting with Reagan. You know, it's pretty well acted. It's pretty much like a very modern situation, you know, and she's mad at the husband. She gets mad at him on the phone and all this stuff. But then she starts to unravel and things start to happen that are weird. And I love that it's a slow burn. Like it starts yeah. out really subtly. Like things don't things don't happen that are outrageous right away. It sort of like builds this tension. And when I watch it in the theater, it's like you're almost just anticipating. You kind of know what's going to happen. And I wonder what it would be like to not know what's going to happen. Because obviously we both knew. When we watched it this time or when you probably watched it as a kid, maybe you didn't know it was going to happen. But again, both of us have vague memories of how we even saw it or if we saw just parts of it. And obviously the word of mouth on this movie spreads. I can't imagine being an audience like the first time this is shown and you kind of know what exorcism is mainly. But even the word was probably new to a lot of people at the time. Sure. So I, I agree with you. I don't think the impact now could be what it was. I mean, and people threw up. People got scared. They left. There was just nothing like this fucking movie when it came out. And obviously the shit that happens to Reagan, it all looked pretty good for the time. I think the one thing that looks kind of fakey is the head spinning around. Everything else looks pretty fucking good still because it's all real. It's all like beds moving, levitating. You know, maybe if you have HDTV, maybe there's some strings, you know, you could see. I don't know. But I just on my TV, it looked fine. But I think the realism and everything is pretty powerful. 
And I think the way they slowly edge you into it really works. Like, like it, until the last 30 minutes where things are really happening. Like I can imagine some people would be bored by this because not a lot happens. You know, it's very slow. Um, but I didn't have a problem with any of that. So one thing I'll say about the scene that, you know, Mad Magazine made fun of where the movie was 1969, you know, crash course with the student protest and all this is I think that actually relates to something that Stephen King kind of said about this movie. So Stephen King has this nonfiction book called Dance Macabre, where he talks about his influences in horror and his writing. It's a real early book in the early 80s. But he talks about this movie. And one of his theories was this is basically a metaphor for the generation gap. Like you, you have this kid fucking swearing at the mother, like, fuck you and fuck your religion. You know, yeah. it's like, it's basically like a hippie swearing at their parent and break. And that, that early scene of Crash Course kind of cements that it kind of is a precursor to the thing. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't see it that way when I watched the movie, but I thought that was a really interesting take. And it definitely is a movie of a new generation because you're having these scenes that are just show, so utterly fucking shocking. And obviously using Mercedes McCambridge was key. Because her weird voice, you know, coming through Reagan is, is you know, obviously it's it, it just cements the possession and all that shit. I also like the backmasking, all the effects. I love almost everything in the practical effects. And I just think it's a cool movie that way. I think there are little things I don't like. I don't really like Kinderman that much. I think he's kind of doesn't really fit in real well. It might have yeah. worked better in the book as a mystery, but I think the what Freakin did with it by minimizing his presence is actually effective. It does add a little suspense, uh, and I think it was probably a compromise with Blatty, but I think it's good that he's minimal. I think it makes the movie stronger that he's not in it very much. In the different director's cut, he's in it more, and it just it's corny. Like his dialogue's kind of corny. I think that's the one thing I would criticize. Um, I didn't have a problem with any of the other dialogue or any of the other acting. Um, and I didn't think Lee J. Cobb was bad. I thought he was fine. He definitely plays Columbo. I mean, that's that's who the fucking actor is. Um, you know, something's been kind of bothering me. It almost seems like he's going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, as far as the influence of this film, I think it's like a total groundbreaking movie for its time. I think it's had influence on Italian horror, just the look of Reagan's craggy makeup and stuff. You could see in a lot of the Giallo films and stuff like that um very influenced influenced that stuff i think it influenced every horror film made after it like every single one i think is influenced by this in one way or the other and i just think the it's a level above most horror films filmmaking wise like the cinematography is better the acting's better uh you know it goes places that we couldn't i don't i just don't think you could have a girl saying like fuck me and all that shit and have someone make it now just not because it's almost not a right-wing thing, but more of a left-wing thing that would prevent that now. I just don't think they would go for it. Um, and I just don't think you could do it. And I also think that a lot of the movies made in the early 70s couldn't be made now. And it's probably my favorite era of filmmaking, at least in U.S. film. I don't think any era is better. There are movies that are in my top movies that aren't in that period, you know, like Goodfellas and stuff. I really rank high. But, you know, The Godfather and Easy Pieces and all this stuff, I love all that stuff. You know, I love this era of filmmaking. So I really like the kind of uh, Easy Rider, Raging Bull aspect of this and how it's directed. So I would say, yeah, I'm totally long on the film. I think it has an influence. But what's interesting is they, you know, one thing you could argue against being long is the new trilogy. I think it's 
I think, but but I would argue to that in two ways. One is maybe this kind of movie is old hat with the exorcism and the hauntings and people aren't going to be into it anymore. And maybe people look at the old one and say, oh, you know, this isn't really doing anything for me. Like Jeff said, it didn't really do much for him. But the other side, I think maybe because that movie was so great and because it was so, you know, well executed, but also shocking in a way, like when I watched it, I'm still shocked by some of the fucking dialogue. It's, I mean, it makes me laugh a little bit because it's just so fucking outrageous. Like they did this shit, you know? And she said those words, a kid said those words. They just overdubbed it later in post because they, when they actually did the editing, they realized, yeah, she doesn't sound that good. So yeah, as far as Linda Blair's performance, the problem with Linda Blair winning an Oscar for this, which she didn't, um, is that her performance is made up of a couple of different people. So a lot of the acting you see her do, I mean, I think she's really good in the film. I don't think she does anything embarrassing. I think the the way she, especially that scene with her peeing and you're going to die up there is perfect. But I think the fact that Mercedes McCambridge does most of the dialogue is kind of weird to give Linda Blair an Oscar. I mean, she deserves, you know, a best dedication award for being going through all the shit she went through, right? The electric blankets and the ice cold room. I mean, just the fact that they froze the room, they would never do that. And they put CGI in. And I think that's another reason I'm on the side of this movie. Like no CGI, almost no post-production visual effects. They did everything. So I think the reactions and stuff of the actors are more visceral because they're actually experiencing all this shit in real time. So it's like, but as far as her performance goes, you can't really award it to just her. You kind of have to give Mercedes McCambridge something. And maybe even Eileen Dietz a little something. So it's like there's too many people making it up. Whereas Tatum O'Neill, even though she was really coached supposedly and all that, she did that whole performance. Um, I'm actually a fan of Peter Bogdanovich, but I still have not seen <laughs> Paper Moon. Maybe someday. But anyway, uh, so overall, I'm gonna I'm gonna end up on the long side here. I do think some of your criticisms are valid, and I do think the impact is less the more you watch the movie. But um, it had the most impact on me on the 2000 edition because I was actually in a theater and it was like a more immersive. And I hadn't I was it was just not fresh in my mind. And it kind of stuck with me in a way. But I'm just a fan. I just think it's a great film. I really like it in all respects. So that's where I'm going to leave it. All right. Well, there you have it. I'm short and you're long, equally long as I am short. So that is episode 45, The Exorcist. We will be back soon with another episode where we examine an interesting feature feature of uh, cultural ephemera. So have a good one, everybody, and stay safe out there and don't do anything that we wouldn't do and all that.